Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hello and welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. Once again, I hope everyone is doing well and taking care of themselves. Times are still rather tough, but hopefully we are all moving in the right direction. So this episode, I would say, is not unknown, but probably not super well-known either. Fact is, most of us are probably more familiar with cases from the US, Canada, the UK, and Australia. Which isn't totally weird, because most podcasts we know of are from these places, and God knows, they're not running out of stuff to talk about. Asian cases in general are not really well known, unless they take place in one of those places mentioned, or they're extra brutal. Today's case fits that criteria. It is also a suggestion from a Patreon member a long time ago. And yes, I finally got around to it. Thank you, AR, for this suggestion, as it is an incredibly infuriating and interesting case. My Australian and Filipino listeners may be familiar with this case, so I guess if you know, you know. Almost an entire family wiped out brutally, only to later discover that the main suspect had been hiding in plain sight all along. This is the case of the Gonzalez family murder in New South Wales, Australia, otherwise known as the story of Seth Gonzalez. Let's begin. Let's start this case off the best way possible from the very beginning. Meet Teodoro Teddy Gonzalez. He was from Baguio City, located in the province of Benguet in the Philippines. Despite growing up in a poor family, he was a hard worker and had set goals for himself when it came to his studies and life in general. He did very well in school and through his hard work and dedication, he was able to give himself the life he wanted and became a lawyer. After graduating from college, he met a woman and he instantly fell in love with her. Teddy and Mary Loiva Josephine Claridades Gonzalez got married in the year 1977 and soon after, they decided to start a family. Their first child, a boy named Seth, would be born on September 16, 1980. His younger sister, Claudine, would be born a couple years later, in 1982. Generally speaking, they were an ordinary family, where the father worked, 
The mother cared for the children following strict Catholic teachings, and the children did their best so as not to disappoint. You could say the Gonzalez family was pretty well off. Teddy was well respected in the community, and aside from practicing law, he also managed to use his hard-earned money to build a 40-room hotel from scratch. He was a man of many businesses, never putting all his eggs in one basket. But sometimes, things don't go as planned, and there's literally nothing you can do about it. In the afternoon hours of July 16, 1990, an earthquake, also known as the Luzon earthquake, hit the Philippines for a total of 45 seconds. The earthquake had a magnitude of 7.8, which is seriously intense, and it also reached the maximum-slash-violent level in the Mercalli intensity scale for earthquakes. Maybe some of you don't live in earthquake-prone areas, therefore you're not familiar with the scale. And if that's the case, just trust me, earthquake of that magnitude would be enough to scare the crap out of like 98% of the population. The strongest earthquake I've ever encountered was a magnitude of 5, and I thought I was going to die. Anyway, the city the Gonzalez family lived in was one of the areas that was hit the hardest. The city lost electricity, water, and phone lines. A total of 28 buildings collapsed, and many roads leading to other towns were inaccessible due to landslides. The city was basically off the grid for about two days. So, how does this earthquake tie into the story? Well, remember that hotel Teddy built all on his own, with his own hard-earned money? That collapsed, and not only did it collapse, the family was inside the hotel when the earthquake hit. Teddy, Mary, and Claudine all managed to make it out with minor injuries, but Seth was nowhere to be found. Turned out, he was stuck under the rubble. Teddy went right back into what was left of his hotel, determined to find his son. He eventually found Seth and dragged him out to safety. I would say that Teddy risked his life to save his own son, something I assume many people would do for those that they love and care for. The Gonzalez family basically lost everything they had in that earthquake. Instead of rebuilding their life from scratch once again in the Philippines, Teddy and Mary began to look into other options. Turns out, Mary had relatives living in Australia, and since things weren't working out for them at the moment, why not try something completely new? The Gonzales began to plan their immigration to Australia, and three years later in 1993, the four of them successfully arrived in a city called Blacktown, about 30-some kilometers from Sydney. Teddy began his career as an immigration lawyer, which was probably a good choice since he was a lawyer in the Philippines, and having gone through the immigration process himself probably helped a lot. Moving to a new country can be tough, though, both as adults and as kids. You have to get used to a whole new system, a whole new way of living, new schools, new people, new currency, even a new way of driving. It took a while, but the family settled into their Australian life, and things were going well for them. It took a few years to quote-unquote make it, but Teddy Gonzalez worked hard to provide a good life for his family. While the parents worked hard, Claudine and Seth also worked hard as students, as they knew it was extremely important to their parents that they did well in school. 
Teddy eventually had his own law firm up and running. The family even bought a plot of land and built a very nice house for themselves in December of the year 2000, located on Collins Street in North Ride, a suburb located in northern Sydney. Now, before we continue on with the case, though, I would like to talk a little bit more about the family, especially about Seth Gonzalez. I mentioned that they were a devout Catholic family, very close-knit and stable, and like many Asian parents, they had very high hopes for their kids. You know the jokes where the parents tell their kids, you can be whatever you want when you grow up, doctor or lawyer. Haha. <laughs> These are also known as tiger parents. At this point, you might think, well, this is a very stereotypical Asian joke, but fact is, a lot of families are still like this. And many of them also happen to be immigrant families. A lot of parents may feel like they sacrificed so much for their kids, brought them to a new country with so many more possibilities, giving them so much more than they themselves ever had. By doing well in school and getting into top universities and following a quote-unquote good career path, that's like the least you can do for your parents. And it technically benefits everybody, right? Doesn't really sound wrong, but then again, studying and doing well in school doesn't really come naturally to everybody. Many people probably had to give up their dreams of, say, becoming an artist, becoming an actor or singer or writer, because these were not seen as stable and respectable career choices. It's just not where the stability or where the money's at, according to older generations. While having money is cool and all, being happy with your life is also really important. Seth Gonzalez knew the rules. He knew it was important to excel and to make his parents proud. He gave up his interests and hobbies and enrolled in the University of New South Wales to study medical science. After a couple years, he knew for sure this was not the path for him. He basically only has one other option now, which was to study law. This time, he enrolled at Macquarie University to study law, and he also began working part-time at his father's firm. Sounds pretty neat, right? He could get his degree, work hard, and eventually take over his father's firm. But I guess this wasn't his calling either. He didn't really seem to care too much about doing well in school. If anything, his grades and his degree probably weren't all that important to him. He very likely went along with everything to please his parents, who also happened to be doing very well financially and were funding him with the kind of lifestyle he wanted. I can't really say if he was spoiled or not, but I do believe he had everything he needed in life and more. And all he had to do in return was to live the life his parents wanted for him. Hmm. Unfortunately for Seth, though, he was on the verge of getting kicked out of law school, and in order to prevent his parents from finding out the truth, he secretly altered his grades to make them look better. I mean, the logical answer, right? Just a quick side note. Does this remind you of another case involving an immigrant family and tiger parents? Perhaps from Canada? A girl named Jennifer Pan? Anyway, 
Seth thought he was being clever and whatever, but somehow his sister Claudine found out. She's a couple years younger than him, and I kind of don't think they were super close, because after she found out, she immediately told their parents. This allegedly wasn't the only time she told other people his secrets. There was a rumor that Seth sometimes wet the bed even as a 20-year-old. The whole family knew about it, and while the parents were genuinely concerned, Claudine found this to be pretty funny and supposedly told other people about it as well. I mean, I would be pretty upset. It's hella embarrassing. I can't really say for sure what kind of relationship the siblings had, but I guess you can come to your own conclusions with the info I've provided. So the parents found out about Seth's dishonesty and worst of all, his failing grades. They were probably shocked, upset, devastated, and very disappointed. They wanted the best for their son, provided him with whatever he needed to live a comfortable life and not worry about money. Now that he was not holding up his end of the deal, they threatened to take away the luxuries they had provided him thus far, including his car, and also threatened to disinherit Seth. This was not the only issue the parents had with their son, though. Seth was allegedly also dating someone his parents strongly disapproved of. This woman was four years older than Seth, and maybe they thought the age gap wasn't ideal, or maybe they thought she was a distraction, or maybe they just didn't think she was good enough. I mean, most of us have probably been through something similar. Super common situation, really. While some of us learn to make things work, some others choose a more drastic path. That's enough about the Gonzalez family, though. Here's what happened a few months later, after the family moved into that nice house on Collins Street. The day was July 10th, 2001. Emergency services received a call from a young man close to 12 a.m. midnight claiming that he found his entire family dead inside his house. He had gone to his neighbor's house for help. He was panicked, said everyone was dead and blood was everywhere. Said he tried CPR, but no use. Soon after, the police and the ambulance arrived to see what exactly was going on. At first glance, it looked like your typical robbery, home invasion gone wrong. Things were scattered all over the house drawers were pulled out, closet doors were flung wide open. You get the idea. Two kitchen knives were also missing from the kitchen. Three people were discovered dead inside the house, and it was an extremely bloody scene. Teddy's body was lying on the floor near the entrance of the house. He had been stabbed multiple times in the neck, chest, back, and abdomen area. Some of the stab wounds proved to be pretty fatal, puncturing his lung and his heart, and his spinal cord was also partially severed. Teddy did appear to have tried to defend himself as he had defensive wounds on his arms. His car keys were found next to his body, and his briefcase was open with papers scattered everywhere. Mary was also found dead near the entrance of the house, around the dining room. She had sustained similar injuries as her husband, and her windpipe was pretty much severed. Her purse had been rummaged through, her belongings scattered all around her body. As for the last victim, 18-year-old Claudine was discovered dead in her bedroom. 
She seemed to have been bashed in the head multiple times with a blunt object, possibly also strangled, and then finally stabbed. Despite having been stabbed, there wasn't much blood on or around her, suggesting that she may have been stabbed after she had already died from other causes. One more thing to add to the crime scene. The words, fuck off Asians, had been spray-painted across a wall inside the home, also with the letters KKK written at the bottom. What could this possibly mean? Racist murders? I honestly cannot imagine being the police officer or the paramedic responding to this house. So much to process. So what happened? Or what do you think happened? Or what really happened? I'm pretty sure you all know exactly where this is headed. So as we can see, the only surviving family member was Seth Gonzalez. Police had a gruesome case on their hands and they had to figure out what the hell happened in that house. The police set up a task force and began to look into the deaths of the three Gonzalez family members. They noticed certain things that stood out to them. First of all, there did not seem to be any sign of forced entry, meaning their perpetrator may be someone familiar to the family, or maybe they found a way in without damaging the door. Later on, they did find a window screen in the kitchen had been pulled out, so maybe that's where the killer entered from. But somehow, it seemed unlikely and almost staged. Secondly, let's look at the mess the perpetrator had made. Like I mentioned earlier, drawers were open, closet doors were flung and left open, as if someone was trying to find something. If someone was indeed trying to rummage through the Gonzalez home looking for valuables, you would definitely expect everything to be tossed and messy, right? The police, though, noticed that although the closet doors were open, the clothes inside seemed completely untouched. Almost as if someone was trying to make it look like they were creating a mess without actually doing it. Nothing of value was taken either. Not money, not jewelry, nothing. If someone broke in trying to steal, you would think they would, well, steal something. The police also found a few bloody footprints near Teddy's body. One was underneath his briefcase, and the other one was in the corner of a room. So, this is the scene the police had to work with. It just seemed really straightforward, but confusing at the same time. Three people had been violently murdered, no question there. But why? What was the motive? And who would want them dead? The autopsies indicated that all three family members died between 4 and 7 p.m. on the day of July 10th. Both Mary and Teddy had gone into work that day, so it wasn't difficult to figure out what time they would have returned home. Mary very likely arrived home at around 5.30 in the afternoon and was attacked not long after entering the house as her purse was still with her. Teddy left work later, possibly arriving home at around 7 p.m. He was also attacked not long after entering the house, which would explain his briefcase and his car keys lying on the floor next to his body. It was also discovered that Teddy had been stabbed in the heart, very likely his cause of death. Claudine, Seth's sister though, was set to be home the entire afternoon. 
The last sign of her being alive was when she sent her friend a text message at around 4.10 in the afternoon. This meant that she was the first one killed and was very likely taken by surprise while she was in her room. There was also a dent made on the wall in her room, which was very likely caused by the same blunt object that the killer used to bash her head in. Despite all of her physical injuries, it was believed that she had died from strangulation. Police, of course, questioned those who were close to the family to establish alibis and to see if they knew of anyone who would want to harm the Gonzalez family. They questioned business partners, family friends, relatives, neighbors, basically anyone who knew the family. This kind of murder seemed rather personal and intense, a bit of an overkill, so police believed that there had to be more to it, and not just a random act of violence. But wait, they of course had to talk to the most important person connected to this case, Mr. Seth Gonzalez. According to Seth, he believed that someone targeted his family because they were Asians. Remember how the words, fuck off, Asians were spray-painted across the wall in their house? Well, Seth also claimed that a few days before the murders took place, a car was following their car on the road, yelling racial slurs and other degrading things at them. Maybe the car followed them around, found out where they lived, and decided to purge the community of an Asian family? Okay, it's not impossible, but of course, police wanted to hear more. So they asked Seth what he was up to on July 10th. Here's his story. Seth had been working part-time at his father's law firm that day. His shift ended at around 6pm and he supposedly had plans with his new friend later on that day. A friend named Raph De Leon. He drove back to his house, parked outside next to the garage, and used his mobile phone to call his friend to discuss their plans. His friend didn't answer the phone, so Seth decided he would just drive over and meet his friend at the house. He said he did not notice anything out of the ordinary, and most importantly, he did not enter the house at all. He did do something we might find a bit strange, though. He probably wanted to let his mother know that he was going to be out that night, so he called his home phone with his cell phone. He was literally outside his house calling his house. Maybe most of us would have just walked in, but I mean, that doesn't make him a killer or a liar. No one picked up, so he was like, oh well, and drove off. He drove around looking for Raph de Leon's house, but couldn't find it. People didn't have Google Maps or anything back then, so I guess if you didn't know where something was, it was hard to find it. In the end, he gave up looking for Raph's house and decided to go meet another friend of his, Sam Dacillo. The two went out for dinner and then visited an arcade. Around 11pm that night, Seth drove Sam home and arrived back at his house at around 11.30pm. And that was when he discovered his entire family slaughtered. Seth's story made sense in general, but there were a few parts that contradicted with the investigation, so he was asked to help reenact the day of the murders. Seth claimed that when he arrived home that night, he saw two men run out of his house, presumably the killers. This part is really hard to explain, but Seth explained that he tried to run after the two guys, and they went from the front of the house towards the back of the house 
When they tried to reenact this chase with Seth, though, it simply didn't work. As in, there was no way he could see the two men around the back. I'm not really familiar with the layout or the details of the house. Just know that police tried to follow what Seth told them, but it didn't matter how they tried it. The reenactment just simply didn't match what Seth told them. Remember I mentioned a couple bloody footprints were found inside the house? One under Teddy's briefcase and one in the corner of the room. Police took note of the shoe imprint and tried to match the shoes. They found a shoe box in Seth's room but couldn't find that pair anywhere. They were a bit suspicious so they took the imprint and compared it to the size and style of the shoe. And what do you know? It was exact size and make as the bloody print, except the shoes were nowhere to be found. At this point, you guys are probably like, okay, Jessica, I'm convinced Seth is the killer. But wait, there's more. Seth mentioned that he didn't get off work till around 6pm, but for some reason, his maternal aunt, who stopped by the house at around 6, saw Seth's car sitting in the garage. But Seth was nowhere to be found. She had tried the front door and found it locked, but she swore she saw someone inside the house. She tried the doorbell multiple times and when no one came to the door, she left. Okay, one more. When Seth arrived home that night, he supposedly went around the house looking for his parents and his sister. He said he found his sister and realized she was still alive, but barely, and was bleeding profusely. I guess in his version, she died some time after he found her and before the ambulance arrived. But remember, according to the autopsy, all three family members were killed at 7pm, the latest. As we know, once you die, your heart is no longer beating, which means there's no way you keep bleeding like a living person. He also claimed to have tried to do CPR on his mother, but considering how bloody the scene was, Seth had very little blood on his clothes. I guess if Seth bothered to pay attention while trying to get his medical degree, he wouldn't have said any of this. By this point, the police were pretty suspicious of Seth. Could he have been in shock, misremembered details, and gave out wrong information? I mean, maybe, yeah. I would be pretty shocked if I were in his shoes, assuming I was 100% innocent. But was he acting guilty? He went on TV asking everyone for help, and he also offered a reward for anyone who had information on this case. During the funeral, Seth gave a eulogy and sang One Sweet Day, a song by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. People found it slightly odd, but, well, everyone grieves differently, right? Police did note that Seth seemed a bit detached, a bit emotionless. But why would a 20-year-old commit such an awful crime, though? In this case, I can name a few reasons. First of all, he was not doing well in school, he was on the brink of getting expelled, and since his parents found out, they had threatened to disinherit him and take away all his current privileges, including his car. That probably made him mad. Seth's parents also disliked the woman he was dating, which probably also upset him. Seth was an outgoing guy. He liked attention. He liked making new friends, but he also seemed to have a bad habit of lying or exaggerating the truth to people. 
maybe because he wanted to impress them. He had once told someone that he had signed with a record label which was worth millions of dollars. Not true. He claimed to have also signed as a model. Again, not true. He also lied to some friends that he was a lawyer. He also told people he had won a championship in wrestling or MMA or something along those lines. Despite all these lies, he kind of gave off a sincere vibe, so it made it easy for people to befriend him and even believe him. We probably all know someone like this. They seem honest, they seem like they come to you with pure intentions, but in reality, it's all a front. Knowing what they know now about Seth as a person, police decided to monitor his behavior for a while. They also had an officer go undercover to try and befriend Seth. They lacked concrete proof, and Seth continued to behave like the sole survivor and a victim. So the police wanted to be more cautious. If they tried jumping into an arrest too quickly, that could backfire on them. So they took their time. Three days after the murder on July 13, 2001, Seth went to see his father's accountant. He wanted to ask the accountant about his father's assets and accounts, asking how much money his father had and if he could take some of it. I assume it was way too soon to make any financial arrangements, so Seth wasn't able to get anything from the accountant. A couple months later, Seth suddenly announced to his relatives that he had brain cancer and needed money for surgery. He even went to his godmother in the Philippines for money, providing some fake-ass medical reports, trying to convince her. Not surprisingly, this was not true. He just wanted money. Since he couldn't get his inheritance, nor could he get people to give him money for his fake surgery, he had to rely on himself. And by relying on himself, I mean he took his parents' belongings and sold them for cash. His mother's jewelry, his father's car, basically anything that was worth anything. He also did receive a certain amount as he was a victim in a crime. So maybe from insurance? In late 2001, Seth reportedly moved out to an apartment, took the money he got, and bought himself a Lexus. And while he was buying that car, he casually told the car salesman that he just bought himself a Porsche. It could be true, but it could also be his inherent need to show off or appear rich. What are your thoughts on this case so far? Or of Seth? The police were getting impatient, and despite Seth's weird behavior, it still didn't point to him as a murderer. A liar? Yes. Obsessed with money and material items? Yes. Despite having no concrete proof, police still put him on the top of the suspect list. They were also highly suspicious of an incident that happened to the Gonzalez family a week prior to the murders. Seth's mother was sent to the hospital on July 3rd, 2001, because she was in pain and suspected she had food poisoning. In other words, she was vomiting and had diarrhea. She stayed overnight at the hospital and didn't think it was a big deal. It was probably something she ate or something she drank. Obviously, it never crossed her mind that her own son could have been the cause of her illness. Police obtained records showing that Seth had contacted a business that sold plants and seeds of all sorts. I can't say for sure what it is that he purchased, but it was something poisonous. 
He received the package on June 29th, and strangely enough, his mother fell sick just days later. Coincidence? Hmm. But during a search of the Gonzalez home, investigators found a bottle in Seth's room containing some sort of clear liquid. Forensics tested it, and it turned out the liquid contained traces of poison. Police also suspected that Seth tried to point the finger elsewhere, just in case, by writing a letter to a local food processing company, claiming to be a disgruntled employee who poisoned some of their products during production. Quote, This is what you get for treating employees like garbage. End quote. In other words, he made up a fake employee identity who poisoned food that resulted in his mother's illness. The letter was received on July 2nd, around the same time Seth's mother got sick. Why do police believe it was Seth who was behind this, though? Because after analyzing the letter, they managed to lift Seth's fingerprints off the letter. And not just that, his internet search history also told a similar story. At this point, the evidence was just stacking up. As you can see, a lot of what Seth told the police didn't really match up with what they found at the crime scene or even eyewitness accounts. Sure, we know that eyewitness testimonies are usually unreliable, but it didn't hurt to ask him about it. So they questioned him about his timeline as the evidence did not really support his alibi. After some questioning and some back and forth, Seth admitted that yes, he lied about his timeline, but he did not kill his family. He explained that the reason his aunt saw his car in the driveway that afternoon was because he arrived home earlier that day, and instead of driving off to see his friend like he said earlier, he called a taxi to go visit the red light district for some fun with the ladies. He was worried his car would be recognized, because if you take a look at his license plate, it literally starts with S-E-F. So obviously... The first thing you would want to do is to check with the driver from that night and perhaps the lady who spent time with him that night. Surprisingly, they tracked down the taxi driver who supposedly gave Seth a lift that night. But according to the driver, Seth had given him 50 Australian dollars to tell the police, if asked, that he had indeed taken Seth to the red light district area. What do you think? Is this enough for police to finally arrest Seth? One extra piece of information that pointed to Seth's guilt was when the police tested Seth's clothing, it was revealed that the exact same blue chemical particles as the ones found from the spray-painted words on the wall was found on his clothes. You know, the whole fuck-off Asians. If he didn't do it, why would he have the exact spray-paint particles on his clothes? Due to all these bits and pieces, Seth Gonzalez was finally arrested and charged for the murder of his parents and sister in June of 2002, almost an entire year after the murders. So, if police believe he's the killer, the family annihilator, what do they think really happened? This is their theory of what happened on July 10th, according to all the evidence found from the bodies and at the scene of the crime. Seth had been working at his father's law firm that day, but for whatever reason, he left early. He arrived home at around 4 p.m. He was angry at his family for threatening to cut him off and taking away his luxuries. 
I mean, how dare they, right? He found his sister Claudine home alone and decided to kill her. He grabbed his baseball bat and two knives from the kitchen and headed upstairs. He used a baseball bat and bashed his sister's head multiple times. She fell to the floor and began to lose consciousness. Then he used his bare hands and strangled her to death. Afterwards, he took out one of the kitchen knives and started stabbing her everywhere, in the neck, her chest, and her abdomen. After he made sure she was dead, he sat around the house waiting for his parents to arrive home. His mother arrived at around 5.30, and as she parked her car into the garage, Seth ran and hid behind the front door. Once she stepped into the house, he began to stab her from the backside, stabbing anywhere and everywhere, including her face, her chest, her neck. He then dumped the contents of his dead mother's purse onto the floor, trying to make it look like a robbery slash home invasion. At around 6, his aunt and cousin arrived at the front door, ringing the doorbell and knocking on the door. Seth stood still, pretending that he wasn't home, but since no one came to the door, the aunt eventually figured that nobody was home and left. At around 6.50pm, Teddy arrives home from work. Again, Seth hid and attacked his father as soon as he entered the house. He stabbed him everywhere, puncturing his lung, severing his spinal cord, and eventually stabbing him in the heart and neck. He took his father's briefcase and dumped everything out, once again trying to make it look like a home invasion gone wrong. After he killed everyone, he took a shower, used a spray paint can, and spray painted the words, Fuck off, Asians, on the wall. He also ripped out a window screen from the back of the house, doing his best to make it look like someone broke in from there. He then either hid or got rid of all his blood-soaked clothes and weapons. As for the rest of the night, he did what he said he did. He went to see his friend and had dinner and went to an arcade. He arrived home at 11.30pm, just as he initially said, and then when he discovered the bodies, he ran to the neighbors and called the police. Seth was charged with three counts of murder and also an extra count for, quote, threatening product contamination, which I assume is when he poisoned his mother and tried to blame an innocent food processing company. He was initially held at the Silverwater Correctional Center, located about 13 miles west of Sydney. He was refused bail. Seth was seen by a psychiatrist who was trying to determine if he had any mental health issues, but the psychiatrist concluded that, at the moment, he could see no signs of any, but he also couldn't rule out the possibility that something might show up later, since Seth was still pretty young. His trial started around April of 2004, and the entire time he was questioned, he answered in a very calm but sad way. He repeatedly denied his involvement in the murders and explained that he was only trying to prove his innocence. The prosecution used the fact that Teddy and Mary threatened to take away Seth's inheritance and luxuries as reason for Seth to murder them. It was a matter of selfishness and greed that caused Seth to commit such a terrible crime. The prosecution also used all the forensic evidence against Seth, such as the shoe print, purchasing poison, and the particles from the spray paint can. In other words, 
Seth most likely spray-painted the words himself so he could mislead the investigation. After a month of being on trial, Seth Gonzalez was convicted on three counts of murder. On September 17th, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The court stated that Seth, although only 20 at the time of the crime, was old enough to know right from wrong and was definitely of sound mind. His actions were not sudden and random. They were definitely premeditated, and the murders were also cruel and over the top. Despite the sentencing and the ruling, Seth continued to insist on his innocence. What do you guys think? I mean, he could literally be the unluckiest guy in the world, locked away for a crime he didn't commit. Or he could just be lying, as if insisting on your innocence will eventually work. Although he was not found to have been suffering from any mental illnesses at the time, I wouldn't be surprised if he was later on diagnosed with something. He was known as a bit of a pathological liar and was showing signs of being a narcissist. Around the time he was tried and convicted, Seth had expressed the following to his relatives. I want you to know that whatever pain you are feeling, I am feeling it worse than you. Okay. Seth was also granted the right to appeal his sentence in 2007, but since the court found no sign of miscarriage of justice, the appeal was dismissed. He is currently serving his sentence at the Goulburn Correctional Centre, a super-maximum security prison in New South Wales. The house the Gonzalez family resided in was later on put on the market, and the real estate company in charge of selling it, L.J. Hooker, did not bother to disclose its history with potential buyers. Everyone in the vicinity knew of the history, though, and of course, no one really wanted to have anything to do with that house. An unsuspecting couple from Taiwan were house hunting in the year 2004 and were, of course, unaware of what had happened in that house. They saw it, they liked it, and they wanted it. They eventually found out the truth, though, but way after they had put down a deposit on the house. Taiwanese people are pretty superstitious, and living in a house where something as bad as a triple murder took place? No freaking way. These people would probably rather sleep on a park bench. LJ Hooker initially refused to refund the deposit. This brought about a lot of negative press and bad publicity to the company, so they eventually agreed to refund the money. Because of this case, the New South Wales government also announced that it would be illegal to, quote, fail to disclose information that could have a substantial impact on the value of a property, end quote. The house was eventually sold in 2005, and yes, this person knowingly bought a triple homicide house. Whatever works for you, really. So there you have it, the very brutal murder of an entire family, most likely committed by the supposed lone survivor. I mentioned earlier that this case reminded me of the Jennifer Pan case, also an immigrant family in Canada involving so-called tiger parents. This case also reminded me of two other cases, the Lynn family murders, which I covered several episodes ago, and the murder of the entire Raffae family in Bellevue, Washington, also known as the True East murders. 
If you're not familiar with these cases, I highly recommend you check them out as they're extremely fascinating, but also really sad. I have a hard time understanding why or how Seth could possibly murder his entire family in such a way. Maybe his parents were tough on him. Maybe he was on the verge of getting expelled. Maybe he would have gotten his privileges taken away. But murder? Seth would be in his early 40s now. And if guilty, I really hope he never leaves prison. Some places have referred to Seth as the babyface killer, and if you've seen any of his photos, then you probably understand why. Well, thank you all again for tuning in to this episode. I know this one was intense and maybe a bit complicated, but definitely worth telling. Please, as always, stay safe and be kind. Till next time. Before I go, I would like to thank the following people for their lovely reviews. 123 username 789 from the US, Sedan Nakon from Australia, and Juris Chan from the Philippines. Thank you for your lovely and kind words. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.